Hello, yummy mummies. Welcome to Beyond the Bump, a podcast brought to you by Jade Caldwell and Sophie Pierce. This podcast is targeted at mums, mums to be, and women in general. And gents, feel free to have a listen too. It's a place to have real discussions and ask real questions, no matter how hard, with honest and authentic people. The aim is to have you feeling lighter, more supported, and more understood after every listen. Now, we can't promise that it will always be kept PG, so please be mindful around little ears. Here we go. Hello, Sophie, and special mini guest, Goldie. Little mini Nick, more like it. But yes, for this introduction, I have Goldie sitting next to me. I've given her my phone to try and keep her quiet and still. But don't worry, she's just woken up very, very early from her nap. But she will not be with us the entire interview just for the introduction. Oh, what a shame. I'd love to have her on. Oh, yeah, it'd be an absolute blast. I'd be able to get heaps done. Well, tell me some highs. Some highs of the week. Oh, I had one. Um... Oh, yeah. My high of the week is I started a weekly hip hop class with Kyla from That's Our Jam Dance School, who we had on for the postpartum body image episode. And so I've started her weekly classes and it was just so fun to go and dance completely sober, do something completely for myself. Just, yeah, look, I danced my whole life and all of a sudden I can't even remember like five moves in a row like I just cannot do choreography anymore but that's okay I think it's like a a learnt skill that I'll just need to practice. Well it seems from the video I saw that you were all doing a fabulous job and I'm sure she is more than happy that I am not there to teach because I was that bad. Everyone seemed to have it all together. Look it's a beginners to intermediate class and I would have thought that I was at least intermediate previously and then I was just like oh shit I'm back to beginner. Oh no, well then I can't imagine what I'd be. But um, good on you and I'm glad you're doing something for yourself in the middle of the week. That's awesome. And what about highs for you? Well, I'm actually taking my daughters to dance hip hop lessons, not myself, which I probably should, but I'm not. I'm taking myself to have a beverage while I'm waiting for them to go and have a dance. So I'm going to take them there. And some highs. Um, I just had a really good week overall. I'm going to go straight to my lows. My husband went away for a night, so 24 hours. It felt because, like a week. <laughs> yeah, it felt like a freaking year. But he went away because he had to do some business. Anyway, while he was away, I was like, it's fine. I'll pick up all three girls in the afternoon. I'll come back, have the dinner sorted, have the bath. Like in my head, I'm like, it may not go like really well, but let's just see how good I can get it. It was the worst afternoon of my life life with all three of them. They could not have been more misbehaved than what they were. Yumi decided to stand up in the middle of the dining room table and throw everyone's pasta onto the floor. The dogs ended up eating that. My 12-year-old blind and deaf pug ended up shitting all over the house. So when I got home, I had to clean that up. The other two older girls were fighting over something so minor that I couldn't even believe they were having an argument over it. And then Mia started fighting with Yumi. Anyway, it escalated to the point that I was just like, I cannot even believe you guys have been that bad. And then once I calmed down and Yumi went to bed, I was like, I probably shouldn't have given everyone a magnum ego on the way home from school 
school. That was probably Mm. the tipping point. But anyway, everyone's alive and well. I'm here to tell the tale. And that's pretty much my high and low because I, you know, made it through the night and day and um, the low was them being little moles. And the same day that you had that, I had another one of my girlfriends who was having an absolute afternoon and I sent you her story to try and make you feel better. But her son had, she was meant to come around for a play and she was so stoked because she's like, I just need to get out of the house. It's been raining nonstop here. And then just as she was about to come, she goes, oh, shit, I think he's got conjunctivitis. He can't come. And she was just like so over it. Anyway, then he went to the toilet on his own and instead of using toilet paper, he used his own hand, came out with just poo all over his hand and on himself. So anyway, any yeah, afternoons look, that we're involve all, we're all in this together. Unnecessary poo is just. Uh, I'm I'm in the poo stage now, and I just can't cope. But you know what? We go through it, and we're all in it together. So not in the shit together, but pretty much in the shit together. And what's your low? It's so funny you've just said all that stuff about poo because just as you've said that, there's an aroma coming from the small child next to me that I'm now going to have to go deal with as soon as we finish this. <laughs> I was wondering why she was so quiet. of the week is I'm really torn about my current breastfeeding state with Goldie. She's, I've never had any issues breastfeeding her. She's a great feeder, but she's just way more boob obsessed than Poppy ever was. Poppy was very matter of fact about it. When it was offered to her, she would have it. When it wasn't offered to her, it was almost like she never even thought about it. Whereas Goldie would happily be on the boob all day, every day if I let her. She's just a boob monster. And it's got to the point where I feel like it is, yeah, I'm talking about you. This got to the point where I want the relationship relationship like she has with Nick where like they can just like hang out together like chill play it's just got to the point now that all she does all day is just motorboats me and screams at my chest and I you know like she'll be happily playing and I'll walk into a room and it's just like like there's the tits um and so I'm at the point now where I just want to wean her during the day I don't mind about a morning and an evening feed and look she every now and again waking up once a night and I'm more than happy to do that but it's just the daytime where I'm like can we just hang out but I'm a bit torn because I'm like is it zero or a hundred like do I have to either completely stop or completely continue this is where I got with both well both three three of my kids and it was around that age where they were old enough and they were eating solids and they were moving around and just for the hell of it it was almost like it was out of boredom that they were like whip your tit out and they would literally pull my top down and the irritation I mean I was pregnant when I had Mia so I was pregnant with Billy so I was already hormonal and like over it by 11 months but even with Yumi I was like this isn't okay like for me personally I just think this is ridiculous and I just chose that you know we decided to stop and at that age they just they all found it fine to just go all right I'm not even interested anyway I would literally wake up and go let's have breakfast instead of you sucking my nipple and then they would and then by literally three days they forgot about it and that was it. That's what it was like with Poppy for me but when I said this on Instagram there was just so many people who wrote back being like, yes, thank you so much for saying this. Like I thought it was just one of those things that like when you wanted to stop, you just stop and that's it. But yeah, lots of people out there having issues or feeling torn about whether they want to wean or not. So just know you're not alone and we promise we're going to bring you a personal stories weaning episode soon. Yes. 
And we hope you absolutely love this episode. We had such an incredible, well, what we thought was an incredible discussion with Leah from The Dearest Days on Instagram. And she talks all about her journey with IVF and her battles with endometriosis as well, which led to the fertility issues. And then also the birth trauma that she experienced with her second birth with Augie and kind of and what she's done since then to try and heal from that trauma. Yeah, and it was a very humbling experience and and story that she told and I hope that, you know, that other people that are having a hard time conceiving or, you know, having a baby, this helps them just feel less alone because she was really, 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 really wonderful to chat to. So we hope you all enjoy. Hello, Leah. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Some of our listeners may know you as The Dearest Days on Instagram, and you're one of my favorite people to follow because you keep things so real and honest, but show, I guess, the beautiful sides of life at the same time. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. No worries. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be on. Now, we're going to talk a bit about your family and motherhood in general, but we're going to have a bit of a focus today on your experiences with IVF and then also your journey through having a traumatic birth and the time since then. So, yeah, we're going to get started. Some of our listeners sent in some questions, but we're just going to have a general chit chat. So thank you for being so open and honest on Instagram about this, but also coming on and agreeing to speak to us too. No worries. I'm excited to be on and let's do it. All right. First up, Leah, tell us a little bit about yourself and your family. Sure. So I am a mum of two little ones, Eva, who is five and August, who is two. I live in Sydney. I have another baby on the way um, and I'm a content creator and I guess I just share my journey. I hate that word sometimes, journey um, of motherhood and life in general across my Instagram account. So good. And can you tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming a mother? Journey, travel, experience. <laughs> I think I was 26. The, the, how old you are just disappears, doesn't it? Like remembering the times of, oh, is this old when this happens? Mark, I've got no idea anymore. But I think I was 26 when we first started trying to have a baby. And I always knew that it could possibly be difficult because I have endometriosis and I had had five surgeries, I think, on, on my endo from ages kind of 21 until 26. Whoa, so like one a year, that's hectic. Yeah, so no, it would have been 21 to 27 because I had my last surgery just before, three months before we did IVF. So we started trying when I was about 26. We tried for two years and it just wasn't working. I guess because of our age, our specialist just kept saying, just keep trying because we were both quite young. So I was 26 and my husband was 28. So they were like, just keep trying, just keep trying. And it got to the point at two years of trying that I just, I was like, I can't do this anymore. And I was finding that process of trying really, traumatic because Mm. if you've ever struggled with trying to have a baby it becomes an obsession and it's just like something you're obsessed with and all you see is pregnant people you know it's all you think about all the time it really takes over your life because it's also like your life is on pause because you're waiting for this huge thing to happen and you're like, oh, I won't book that overseas trip because I might be pregnant or I won't do that because I maybe I'll be pregnant then. So once we got to the two-year mark, I was just like, I'm not doing this anymore. So we went and saw my GP again and they were like, yep, okay, let's move things along. And I guess that's when we started down the road of doing IVF. 
I imagine it is so hard because I feel like your whole teens or whenever you start being sexually active, I'm not going to drop when I lost my virginity, but (laughs) I feel like it's drummed into you that it's like, if you have sex, you're going to get pregnant. And, you know, even though like Poppy only took six months to conceive, but I was kind of like, no, I'm just meant to like look at Nick and have unprotected (laughs) sex and boom, I'm going to have a baby. And I mean, even six months to me, it was this weird balance of like, ovulation took so long to come around but then before you knew it a month was over as well like it was such a weird it's such a weird waiting game even though I didn't try for that long where it's yeah all of a sudden you don't know if your period comes around quickly or takes a long time and whether ovulation comes around like it just is this weird weird time zone you're in it's like I've got a few of my friends one or two that have had big surprise babies and I'm like I don't understand how you have these surprise babies because like if you're having unprotected sex and you're having sex around when you ovulate, like possibly you might get pregnant, but also it's not that hard not to get pregnant. Like I'm like, what? what is this surprise baby? But I, I guess understand. if you've never tried for a baby, <laughs> yeah, that maybe. ovulation period, like I feel like, you know, before you start trying to have a baby and if you've never had any issues like reproductively, mm. a, a lot of women don't know where in their cycle they are. So, But it is yeah. such a different journey when you are actually trying trying to conceive and it doesn't happen and I am not one that's had to go through, you know, years of trying, but I went through a few months of trying. So it's the only experience that I can talk about. And what you were saying before, Leah, about the obsession that you have, it is, it's such an obsession. And I, I, my heart goes out to everyone that is trying because you wait for that period not to come. And when it does, your heart breaks and then you have what, another two weeks or another whole month again, that you have to painfully punish yourself in a way, mentally that Mm. what's going on what's going to happen the stress comes on to you and yeah it my heart really does go out for everyone that is trying periods are fucking annoying enough as it is let alone if it it symbolizes not being pregnant definitely yeah I think that's the thing like that's what was killing me was doing those tests every month and just every month seeing the negative for two years I was just like I just can't so were you taking tests before you got your period yeah I think I was yeah because I was obsessed like I think Mm. I'd start taking them probably five days before my period was due even I'd start taking them and like every day until yeah it just it got to be a really unhealthy obsession did you get to the point where you just didn't enjoy sex anymore oh well it's a chore yeah it's not because I remember one time my husband had to go away for work and he had like a red eye flight from Sydney at 6 30 and I was like, well, I'm ovulating then. So we're going to have to wake up at 4am yeah. and have sex. Sorry. And it's just like set your alarm. It's not that okay. spontaneous like, rollover 4am oh, no, sex two years, By the time it's two years, you're like, right, get the job done. But on the <laughs> other hand, it's quite nice because you, you know, obviously this baby is made out of pure love and you really, really want it. My friend, she's actually gone through a similar process of trying for months on end and she's had to go on medication and she was telling me her 
story and she said, honestly, I would yell out and say, all right, let's go, come in here. He'd like juice himself up because they just had no time. They've got a little one as well. They have no time to like get romantic and get into it. And she said, I'd have my legs up, ready to go. He'd be in and out and that was it. And I was like, wow, but that's what you've got to do when you're trying to have a baby. It is. It's not always, you know, romantic. (laughs) How did you find out that you had endometriosis? Because a lot of women go years before they get diagnosed and often don't even find out until they're, say, having troubles conceiving. Yeah, I feel like the stigma around it from when I was diagnosed to now has really changed. Mm. And I feel like in the medical industry itself, from medical professionals and just in the you know public awareness of it has changed and there's a lot more about it now. But when I was so 21, I was diagnosed, I'm nearly 35, so that was a long time ago. Yeah, definitely. Um, and there was not really much awareness about it then. So I was having horrible periods where mm. I would bleed and also have extreme pain, but also clot quite a lot as well throughout my whole cycle I was having pain I went to quite a few different specialists I remember one specialist of course he was a man said to me because I was basically going to emergency every period because the pain was so bad I was passing out and so I was going in having to get on a morphine drip and this one specialist said to me you know, you only get your period once a month. So you're only coming to emergency once a month. So really once a month's not really that big of a deal. And I remember oh, just thinking, Did you say, can I kick you in the balls as hard think, as physically possible oh, once, once a, month. a month? I think I was just flabbergasted. Like I was just like, what the fuck? And there's that intimidation when you're talking to medical professionals too, because you're like, well, you know what you're talking about and maybe I'm overreacting. And there's that whole thing behind women's periods as well. Not as much so now, but back then that, that, oh, you have a period and it could be painful and that's just your lot and you just deal with it because you're a woman and that's the way it is. So I think that it has really changed and it kind of probably wasn't until I was with my partner who I'm with now that he was also just like, no, this isn't normal. I shouldn't have to pick you up off the bathroom floor. Mm, And my mum also was really like, no, no, we're going to get to the bottom of this. So I started seeing another specialist in Sydney and got diagnosed originally with PCOS. And I think originally there was a lot of confusion between PCOS and endometriosis. What is PCOS? polycystic ovarian syndrome and they're different symptoms like they're they're different they're different things but back then there was a bit of confusion around it so I got diagnosed with that and got put on this ridiculous diet for basically if you're diabetic and I couldn't eat carbs or sugar (gasps) and I got down to 47 kilos like literally I was eating vegetables and yeah so I got down to 47 kilos and my mum saw me she hadn't seen me for a while she was like what is going on this isn't right so we then went to a different specialist who specializes in PCOS and he was like you don't have PCOS I'm pretty sure you've got endometriosis and see this specialist oh my god as a 21 year old like lady I don't want to say girl because you're not a girl anymore Mm. but like as a 21 year old that is so hectic and damaging it took me years to get a diagnosis you just think oh I'm just supposed to deal with this this is because my lord I'm a woman this is what happens and it's no if you are having painful periods where you're needing to take every single month really strong painkillers if it's affecting your life that it's stopping you going to work or to uni or to school even then I think they're triggers to be like okay what's going on here 
let's take a look at this. But I saw this amazing specialist and he's still my specialist now. And he was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure you've got endo, but they do a surgery to definitely diagnose it. So then I had the surgery and it was kind of everywhere. So that was the first surgery I had. So that's how I got that diagnosis. It took so long, but I really believe it has changed a lot since then. And what do they do when you find out you have endometriosis? Do they take something out or yeah so basically endometriosis is when you have your period and the lining of your uterus sheds and it comes out it's when that doesn't come out fully and it forms adhesions in all different parts of your body so it can be anywhere my my most recent this kind of discovery just before I fell pregnant was that we think it's possibly gone into my diaphragm so I was literally just about to start exploring that and then I fell pregnant so we can't do anything about it now so yeah so they basically you have a a laparoscopy and then they laser some people cut it out I think I think my my surgeon lasers it out of you though and does it grow back like do you have to have that all the time yeah so if you've got the condition it just continues to grow back there is a lot you can do to help it though so I was on tramadol and another prescription painkiller I can't remember what it's called so two different types of prescription painkillers for about four years to manage manage my pain in between surgeries and I just wasn't happy with doing that and that was just before we wanted to start trying to have a baby as well so I was like I can't be on this if I fall pregnant so I started seeing a Chinese fertility acupuncturist who deals with like women's issues as well and through seeing him and having acupuncture once a week and taking a shit ton of Chinese herbs I think my body must have rattled with the amount of herbs I was taking but uh, I was able to get off those painkillers what was really really scary when I went off them was I had to take two weeks off work to go off them and I had full withdrawals so I was like sweating and sick and had diarrhea and I was like this is insane that this is the effect that it has had on my body yeah so I had the the full withdrawal symptoms from being on them I guess that you weaned before you were pregnant because going through that while being pregnant would be even worse and it seems so cruel also because it's you know you're also dealing with all these symptoms while you're trying to conceive your periods are worse than Mm. I guess the average human so you're upset because you've got your period and then you're having a heavy period that's extremely painful but you can't really be on any medication that stops you from having your period because you need your period to conceive it's like a delight. vicious cycle. It was a delight to be around. So what steps did you take? I think first I did a lot of research in terms of what IVF clinic I wanted to go to because I know there's bulk billing ones that are kind of part of a hospital. There's private ones that cost a lot more. So I did a bit of research in, in trying to work out where it was I wanted to go to and we worked out that I wanted to go to a private clinic just because the differences for anyone who's kind of going down that road mm. is obviously when you pay more for something like most things in life, not always, but most things you get a better service. I guess it's more tailored for you and yourself. So when you do it publicly, often they link, try to link everyone's cycles. They try and tie them together as much as they like can. Make it so more efficient kind for of, them. Yeah. So they can do the one cycle across maybe five people. So everything's done at the same time because mm. IVF is such a, it's a real step by step by step kind of process. And I was like, I don't want to do that I want to I want someone who has a plan and it's just for me it's not for four other people it's what's best for my body so we went privately and I think I did a lot of just google searching about which specialist and my doctor recommended this specialist as well so we found that I wanted to go to her 
And then we just started down that road. And what does that look like? So, I mean, there's a lot of tests you have to do before you start IVF. So that first time you kind of got about, I think the initial test we did take about six weeks when you do all, you and your partner both have to do all these tests to check. I can't even remember what they're checking out, but they're checking a shitload of things. So you do those tests and then you kind of get the green light of like, okay, linking in your cycles and everything. Let's, let's go here. It's basically, as I was kind of saying, it's like a cycle. So when you first start your period, that's your first day you go in, you get given your kit of drugs that you like take home. And I remember taking them home and I was like, this is so weird because I was on the bus because we live in Sydney. So my clinic's based right in the city on Kent Street. And so I was like going home on the bus with these kind of pesky because I've got to be cold of drugs and needles. And you're like, this is really strange. The whole process of IVF is strange, though, in this weird kind of scientific, strange parallel world. So you go in and you do your initial blood test and then they work out what your treatment plan is. And basically you start every second day, you have a blood test so they can monitor where all your levels are. And then every morning you inject yourself with a drug. And how did you find that? Mm. I think the first few I was pretty like, oh, this is weird. But I think because I've had so many surgeries and been to emergency so many times and had so many tests that needles by that point don't really bother me anymore. And the other thing is the IVF nurses are the best at doing the blood and the needles. They're so good at it because they do it, you know, 40 times a day. So they are the best. You never even feel it. And then when you go to emergency and someone puts a thing in, you're like, oh my God, what are you doing? (laughs) Can I just go to my IVF nurse first, even though it's completely unrelated? The worst. And And I have really weird veins and they can't find the veins often. And they're like, oh, we can't find a vein. And I'm like, because really? <laughs> it is so time sensitive did you have to tell work like how did you like yeah. yeah I didn't tell my work but I was really lucky in that I at that time and I still have those friends I had this amazing group of friends and there was kind of five of us that all worked in the same team and we all sat together and it was like the best we're like they were the dream days and so I told them because they were like my support team at work and I was like I'm going to tell you this because I may be a cranky bitch and <laughs> you need to know what's going on so I told those girls and then I obviously my family and a few close friends as well. But the thing with most of the clinics, they open at 7am. So you just, I would just go in straight away before work. And did you have any friends going through a similar thing or who had had babies through IVF previously? No, I was the first one. I think out of my friendship group, I was probably one of the first ones to have kids. I guess kind of where we live and being in the city, everyone's kind of a lot more career focused. So trying to have a baby at 28, even though that other people that might seem older in our kind of circle that were still quite young. Like I have friends that are 35 and they're still having their first, you know, babies Mm. now. So no, so it wasn't, I felt quite alone in that. Yeah. And I think also you, I mean, you had had issues with endometriosis before, but so often IVF is, I guess, like labeled as a thing for women who start trying to conceive older. And you probably would have felt like you were the first of your friends at 26, like to me, that's relatively young. Like, yeah, you just wouldn't think that that was what your experience would then need to be. Not at all, but you go into the IVF clinic and you're in there, which I think that's the weirdest. One of the weirdest parts of all of it is sitting in the, so you go in each morning and you sign in, you go up and my IVF clinic was like this weird, juicy kind of looked a bit like a day spa as well. <laughs> Ooh, so, you like, so you could go in and there was all like your Carmen's muesli bars and like fresh yogurt at the kitchen. You could like help yourself for Yum. breakfast because you've gone in 
screen so early for your blood test and I used to take them for my girls at work and be like, here you go, here's your Carmen's Missy bus for the day. But sitting in the waiting room, you wait for your name to be called out to go in for your blood test and it's such a weird vibe because you're just sitting there and you don't and know. And how were the other women in there? Like was there people, do they communicate with you? Did you talk to each other or yeah. was it that weird sterile environment it's where everyone weird. looks down? Yeah, it's super weird. Sometimes you kind of catch a glance of someone's eye and you kind of do that weird like smile because you're like, I don't know if you want to engage with me, but mm. I'm just going to smile because it's like, oh, sucks for here. Let's smile at each other. I don't yeah. know. It's just, it's super weird. And then when I went in to do it the second time, it was even weirder because I had to obviously take my two-year-old with me. Oh, that is hard. And it was horrendous because I remembered when I was in there and trying to have a baby and I'd see other people because they advise you to not bringing a child in with you if you can and I had nowhere for her to go a lot of the time so I was like sorry but when I went in there with no kids for the first time and looking at other women had had a kid and you'd be like fuck you like what are you doing in here taking these resources you've already got a kid like go away (laughs) what more do you want yeah me first (laughs) um that was also very strange so I was kind of you know had an ipad and like drilled it beforehand and had all the snacks i was like don't make any sounds or noises <laughs> or do make heaps of sounds so everyone's like ah oh, okay fair enough she's yeah. annoying <laughs> let me just clear this up in my own head and possibly other people who don't know with ivf do they get your husband's sperm and then your eggs and take them out into a lab and then they at the right time put them in together and then put that back inside you and hope it all goes well pretty much so so you do for 14 days, you'll do your one injection and then you get to, I think it's depending on where your cycle is, you'll have to do a trigger injection. So the first part of the cycle is very much about trying to get your body to produce as much eggs as you can. But you also don't want to um, produce too many because then you can overstimulate and it's really dangerous and you end up in hospital. So you do that and then you're having blood tests every second day and then every four days you have an ultrasound just so they can check that there's a good amount of eggs but not too many eggs. So then you get the trigger injection. So then you're doing two injections and that's to basically tell your body to start releasing the ovaries, the eggs, sorry, and then not the ovaries, keep those in there. Um, So then, yeah, that's the other really weird thing is when you go into the clinic when it's your time to go in. So you go in with your husband, your, your partner, sorry, and then you go off to have your egg retrieval done. And mine was not, like some people have their egg retrieval done and it's okay. Mine was really horrible and painful and they basically had to put me. So I just was like, oh, just give me a light sedation. And they said because I had so much scar tissue in there oh. from my surgeries that it was so painful then they just decided to just put me, not under a general, but they just knocked me out. Like I don't remember anything. Um, So you do that part, of course, and then your partner does, like, that really nice... Fun part. Oh, so everyone knows that your partner's off to have a look at a magazine in the bathroom. But they, like, but they, and they. Yeah, my, well, what's my in the room? Partner's like, my partner's like, yeah, and you walk in there. Blocked and it's like off. a full room, like decked out with everything you need. And you've got all your material. There's TV screen, there's magazines. Is there porn on the TV? Yeah, you can choose what you want. Oh, oh my wow. gosh. Is there like I'm, a, I think only the fancy clinics have that. <laughs> armchair in the corner, too. Ew, and like a velvet, Ew. a purple velvet robe. Like, I'm imagining. Full Hugh Hefner vibes going on oh, with just, a bit of a plastic like, oh. covering. Yeah, yeah. I think everything's wiped downable. Even I'd like though to hope you want to so. be getting it in the right jar, right? So yeah. So he does that. I did a different. We did a different thing called ICSI. I S C I. I think it is where so there's two options you can put the egg and the sperm in a dish and let them come together and do their thing 
or they take the sperm and they inject it into the egg. So that's another component. So we did that. And then they basically grow them in a lab for five days. And so you get you get given a, a scientist who then gives you updates every day on how your embryos are growing. Wow. And so and- you get a call at a certain time every day and they're like, oh, yeah, they've made it to... There's different stages of an embryo. I can't quite remember now, but there's like the burrowing and then the hatching phase. And then once you've reached the five days, they they grade the embryos and they take the one that's the best one. And that's the one they put inside you. When I hear IVF, I hear people talk about rounds, like it's a boxing match. What does it mean when you have rounds? Like, do you take out a few eggs and then they use them over the next few months if yeah. the other one doesn't? Con- yeah. Yeah. Right. So you hope to get like more than one. Like you shouldn't have to have your eggs re- like you're hoping you're not going to have to have eggs retrieved every month. So you go in and they try and get as many as possible, but what's safe for your body to like make. And then they take all of them and then they try and put one embryo in fresh and then they freeze the rest. But if your body isn't ready to have that embryo fresh, they'll freeze them all. And then each month you go in and you get a frozen embryo put back in. So you're kind of hoping to get as many embryos as possible from that first round. Mm. But unfortunately, sometimes people do a round and they don't get any or they get, you know, however many eggs and none of them make it to be an embryo that can be implanted back in and that kind of thing. How long did it take for you? So we, we're so incredibly lucky that we did IVF twice and it worked both times. <sighs> so we got 13 eggs and then five embryos. So my daughter is the first embryo and then they were frozen in time for two years and then my son is the second embryo and yeah we're really lucky we've got three frozen as well it is always wild to me that like your daughter and son were conceived at the exact same time yeah it's super weird and and I was talking a bit about this the other day I think on Instagram that they're technically fraternal twins yeah just at different times well I thought that but I looked it up once and apparently a twin is something that shares the same uterus Oh, because there you go. I was like, doesn't that mean that lots of IVF siblings are twins? And I was like, that's so cool. But anyway, I still think it's like wild that they were yeah, conceived it's, at the same time. And they, they I wonder too, because they look like, because you know how not all siblings look super similar? Oh, no, um, really yeah, but they have all the same features. Wow. They're all the same. They have the same hair, nose, lips, eyes, mouth. It's all the same. Do you have any advice on how to support a friend going through IVF who hasn't yet had any success? Yeah, I think it's it's such a tricky one for friendships, especially if that person may have kids or they may Mm. be pregnant at that time. It gets to be really hard. I think the worst thing you can do, though, is withdraw. And I think sometimes that happens quite a lot because people are worried about saying the wrong thing. And it's better to say something than nothing. You know, I think just being there and just those little text messages of checking in, you know, every three or four days means so much. Even if you're not really saying anything, you're just saying, hey, I'm thinking of you just checking in. I think it's just honestly just letting that friends know that they're thinking of you and if there's anything they can do to help. There's nothing you can really say when someone's struggling with infertility. There's nothing you can say that's going to help it or fix it. It's just about doing other little things which may seem small to that friend but to the person that's going through it, it just means that they feel supported. And as a friend, you want to give you know, all the answers. You want to say anything you can to make them feel better. But as all you they said, want is to be pregnant and you yeah, can't there's do nothing that you can them. do. That's it. 
Have you ever felt like guilt around? So for example, I had a friend who was going through IVF and she was having a lot of trouble conceiving. And she said, oh, as soon as I get pregnant, I will like never complain about the pregnancy. Like I'll just be so happy to be pregnant. Have you ever felt that guilt where it's like, I can't whinge about my kids because I wanted so badly for them to be here? Yeah, definitely. And I think I felt that a lot in the first year of motherhood, especially because I really struggle with the first year of motherhood. Motherhood. And I know a lot of a lot of people do, but I I guess I, I found it really hard. Like I mm. and I, I know now after having a second baby that that was because I ha- I had a really really hard baby, a hard newborn, and a hard toddler. And so I really I doubted myself so much, and I just kept saying to myself, "But this is this is what you've wanted for so long. Mm. Like you just have to suck it up. You're so lucky you have a baby." And I think when you've gone into those clinics. And you've sat down and you've seen the other faces of people that are struggling. They kind of stay in your head as well. And you just, when you're thinking, this is so hard, I hate this, this is horrible. And I, I felt like that a lot in my first year of motherhood. I felt like this is so hard. I actually really don't like this. Why does my baby fucking hate me? What the fuck have I done? What am I doing wrong? Do you know what I put myself through to have you, you little yeah, shit? Yeah, like, <laughs> I know, appreciate me, you shit. But you do, then you feel guilty. But it's just this cycle and it's so unhealthy, this cycle of guilt. Yeah. Totally. I feel you. I was pregnant and I was sick the whole way through and then the kids come out and you just go through those motions of being like, you know, even though I didn't do IVF and I, you know, conceived naturally, it's still, you just get in this headspace where you're like, oh my goodness. Even when being pregnant and feeling sick, you, you almost like, oh, I just... I don't know. It's just a, it's a real overwhelming time when, you know, you, you do have another person in your life forever and it's not just you. And we got to give each other credit because no matter what journey we're all on or been through, we are looking after many humans and they are hard work. Yeah, that's it. And I think it's true. I've kind of had it a bit on the the other foot of, of guilt as well now. And one of my really good friends is going through infertility and you know I have two kids and I'm pregnant and so and and she's going through that and if if it works out it will be her first baby and so there's that guilt I feel too because I'm just like oh and I have these kids and I don't know it's just the the load of motherhood there's just guilt everywhere isn't there I can't (laughs) wait to get to that What's that? The third pregnancy. Yeah, go now. Well, I just wanted to ask, how was it when finding out that you were pregnant the first time? Like, what did that feel like when they said, what did they do? They'd like send a courier pigeon and be like, (laughs) you are pregnant. Well, no. So you're supposed to wait 12 days. So you go into the clinic from 12 days from your psych, from your transfer, sorry. And you go in and have a blood test. But no one waits. (laughs) Who waits? I don't know anyone who waits. So I got today... I posted a photo of it on my Instagram the other day, actually. I think I think it was day seven and I did a test. Oh, girl, you really didn't get that far in. <laughs> day seven, I could have a look. It might be day eight. I've had friends that have tested at day three. I was like, oh, my willpower was good. But I used to walk home from work every day and be like, I'm going to do the test. I'm going to do the test. And then I would just chicken out because I was so scared of mm. it being negative. And because that's what I was mm. so used to, the test being negative, I was like, I'd rather stay in this limbo land yeah. not knowing than knowing that I'm not pregnant. So I went home one day and 
I did the test and it was negative. And I was absolutely shattered. Like I remember I just laid on the bathroom. Because it was your first IVF round. Yeah, yeah, and I just laid on the bathroom floor and cried for about mm. two hours. And my husband came home and found me on the bathroom floor and I was like, I did the test and it was negative. And he looked at it and he was like, wait a minute. If you like really squint and like really hold it up to the light, you can see like a tiny, tiny faint light. Like you had to really... And I was like, oh, yeah, maybe. So we're like, oh, maybe, maybe I am pregnant. And we're like, all right, let's wait two days. And that was a Friday. And we're like, let's wait till Sunday morning and do the test then. And, you know, they always say to do it your first wee of the day because it's like the strongest wee. So I got up, I think, at like 4.30 in the morning and did, <laughs> did the test and it was positive. And You're like, Yay! it's technically Sunday. I waited. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I waited. It's 12.01. Um, <laughs> yeah, totally. I know, 12.01. But, yeah, and I did it and it was positive. And it, it's just that weird feeling where you don't really know what to feel. I mean, obviously I cried and I was like, this is amazing. And then I did a pregnancy test twice a day of for the next week. I like would wait and see the line get stronger and stronger and compare them. It's just the obsession of it is. pregnancy continues. My girlfriend recently sent me a photo and this is the same one that's been trying for a very long time for her second child. And she sent me this photo of exactly what you were saying. I think it was literally day three where you could check, but like it was really early. And she's like, can you see that really, really <laughs> faint second line? Like, can you see that? And I, I could see it. Well, they say any line is a positive. But it, no, no, no. It was, it was almost like if you were so obsessed that you could be tricked and I didn't want her to have false hope and me go yeah absolutely so I sort of played it down and I was like look I go it's so early I'm not too sure if I can see that and she's like yeah maybe you're right anyway then a few days later she came to me and she's like it's so strong it was like a positive too and she was so over the moon and it's just so beautiful even being on the other side of a friend going through all those motions and understanding and not actually being that person having to go through it but I just get goosebumps hearing these stories because that journey in itself of how long it takes for other people to you know reach that point of finding out they're pregnant is just such a miracle it is yeah it really is when it happens it's hard to believe it then you go into the clinic and you do your proper official did you pretend you didn't know well they (laughs) kind of ask you so I kind of did a little bit but she was like have you got any inklings on what might be going on? And I, and I said, oh, I think good things. <laughs> I think, i.e. 27 pregnancy yeah, tests have told no, me that uh, I'm pregnant. I get out my box from my back, you know. Yeah, so and then you do the test, you go home and you wait. And I'd taken the day off work because I was like, well, I just I don't want to have this moment, you know, in my work cubicle or in the hallway at work. So I took the day off work and I sat at home watching shows because waiting, like waiting for my phone to to ring and then it's just the weirdest thing because this practically stranger rings you and they're like congratulations you're pregnant and you don't really know what to say you're mm, just like thanks. oh okay thank you great and then they're like <laughs> your, your specialist will call you this afternoon with the next steps and then you hang up the phone and you just it I just must froze. Be so surreal it's I, I literally froze and pressed play back on the show I was watching like I'd paused it and pressed play and just sat there watching it until it ended and then was like 
oh, okay, yeah, right, that just happened. Well, that's so nice. It's like, and it, would that happen like, you know, every few hours you go, oh, I'm pregnant. Oh, I'm pregnant. Yeah, totally. It's it's such a weird thing because you've been waiting for that moment for so long and been two years of waiting for that moment and you dreamt of that moment and you were like, and when you'd been in a really low phase and a really hard time and you were really struggling mentally with what was going on, you just kind of go, no, keep going for that moment. Just keep going for that that end goal. Keep your eye on the end goal. And then you get that end goal and you just, it's yeah, it's incredible. And was your partner really supportive during this whole time? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's so good. Like he's such a champ and he's just he's amazing with that thing even with my endo all the time like he's so he's so supportive if I'm not feeling well or whatever he just takes over were there any times where you felt like it just wasn't going to happen and do you have any tips for others going through it on how they can get through those times yeah I like I think because of my my age and when I saw our specialist and she was kind of pretty honest and that she was like you're pretty straightforward you know you're a pretty straightforward I think that we'll do this we'll do that and out of three cycles, you'll you'll get a baby. Like she's like, I obviously can't guarantee anything, but that's mm. what my professional opinion is. That give us three out of three cycles, you'll have a baby. So I guess I felt a lot of confidence in that. And I'm a real planner. I love having a plan and having a plan when doing going through two years of the unknown mm. and then getting a plan. I was like, yes, I am down for this plan. I like having steps to follow and. I guess my advice would be just to take each step and don't worry too much about the next step because IVF is such a process and there's so many boxes you got to tick and hurdles you got to jump until you get to the next stage. So I think just taking each stage and worrying about that stage and then when you get to the next stage, worry about the next stage. Just don't think too far ahead. Is that almost good though because it's almost a distraction? I feel like the the two years of trying to spontaneously conceive, I feel like all you're doing the whole time is waiting where Whereas maybe mm. the positive of IVF is there's so many things you have to do that if you are a task orientated person like I am, like I like ticking things off and you're like, yeah, well, it's productive and maybe yeah, at it, least it that would be a distraction. Yeah, I found doing the IVF process as hard as it was, I, I think I found it easier doing IVF than doing that two mm. years of just the negative tests. I was like, I just can't do this anymore. I can't I, do I it. I hear so many people say like IVF was not as as, like it was weird, but it wasn't as scary as I thought. And so many people saying that they wish they'd given it a go earlier because that, you know, the two years for you, for example, is just so gruelling. Yeah, I think there's this real big stigma around IVF and that it is this horrible, invasive and which like it is all those things as well. Don't get me wrong. I'm not downplaying it. And I guess too, I'm lucky that my journey with IVF was relatively straightforward mm. and simple. So I'm not downplaying it to any degree. But I I think a lot of the time too, like it's it's not always as bad as it's made out to be. I think especially if you're someone who's task orientated and you mm. you find following steps, you know, really helps and is calming and helps you. So I think, yeah, it's not like I'm with the way um, medicine is now and science, like the things they can do is just it's crazy. Like when you go in to have your frozen or your fresh transfer and you see you see your embryo up on the screen before they put it in, like they show it to you and you can see it like moving and it's just, it's so weird. And that was the other weird thing after I had the embryo put inside me. Then they're like, okay, bye. And you're like, what, what do I do now? Like, do I have to lie down with my legs 
up in the air cross for 47.8 hours like what do I do and they're like no no just on your way and you just go on and I remember going through the city again back to work and being like you none of you even know what has just happened like I have just had an embryo put inside me and you all have no idea just going about your daily life and I just had this amazing like weird strange thing happen it's just the whole process of it is just Odd. And well, you think if you could, like, if you just manage to pop that thing up there, then surely I can't just walk around. Like, yeah, is it like just going to fall out? out? Yeah. Well, you went back for more. You went back for seconds. Yeah. And that was, what, a three-year gap or a two-year gap? So my, my kids are two years and 10 months apart. So mm-hmm. two-year gap, I guess. Yeah. And did you feel pressure going back the second time, like, because it had happened the first go last I, time? I didn't think it would happen the first go, but I knew we had four embryos frozen. So I think that second time, and we're like, where are we in such a blessed position? Like so incredibly lucky to, to be in that position where I knew we had you know, those, those embryos frozen for us. So mm. I didn't feel that intense pressure. And I think the thing that you feel too doing IVF for the first time is they don't really know how your body's going to react to it. And some people's bodies react quite well. They follow the cycle, they follow the steps, they follow the guidelines of what they've put out for you, but some people's bodies don't and they do mm. really weird things and they have to change all their medication or try different things because it just isn't working. I was really lucky And I've always said this, you know, my body has failed me a lot of times. I've had a lot of surgeries. I've taken out every organ that you don't actually need. And it's failed me in a lot of ways. But I was like, my body nails IVF. Like it nails it. It follows every single step. So when it came to the important thing, it did what it needed to do. So I didn't feel the second time that pressure because that first time you just like, this could be 10 rounds before we get a baby. You don't know. Whereas going in a second time, I just felt like, okay, this might take a few goes, but we've got a few goes and that's okay. And a little surprise happened. Um, Yes. You were pregnant again and were you planning on having number three? We talked about it but it wasn't a locked-in plan. Talk us Um, through the night it happened or the day. (laughs) We want details. I, like, after I had my first, my first, like, I was like, I think maybe we'll just have one and that's probably it. (laughs) And then it wasn't until she kind of chilled out a bit and I chilled out a bit, I guess, as a mum as well. We found our groove and we got to when she was two and I was like, no, no, I can do this again. After we had my second, even though I was going through a lot mentally after we had him, I was like, this is, this is heaven. I've got a baby and he loves me and he sleeps and he's not screaming all the time. And like, I get this now. Like, I think, I, I think maybe I could do this again. And my husband was like, oh, yeah, I just had a baby. Like, what is wrong with you? Settle down. Um, and I guess we'd started, so we'd started talking about it and we'd kind of thought, okay, we kind of thought about doing it last year. Then the world went crazy, of course. And so we we're like, wow, what happened? <laughs> that little old thing. And so then we we're like, okay, let's pick this up again, whether we do this definitely or not next year. So being this year. And then, yeah, just one day I was like, oh, because my I time my cycles, not like for sex or anything, but in terms of my symptoms, because I've been tracking them all because my endo since I had mm. August has gotten a lot worse again. So it's been peaking up. So I breastfed Eva for two years and they say that when you're breastfeeding, obviously all your hormones aren't back to normal. So I think that kept my endo at bay. I had a month between not breastfeeding and being pregnant again. So my body never had a chance to return to normal properly. And then August stopped breastfeeding at 
14 months. So it's had a long time to get back to normal. And so my symptoms have been so bad again and having all these weird things where I like couldn't breathe properly and pain in my lungs. And they were like, yeah, I think it's possibly in your lungs. We need to probably book another surgery. Hell. Yeah, it's extremely rare. but That's a long that's, way from the source. That's that is, really it that's is. not It okay. can travel anywhere though because it just gets in your bloodstream and up it goes. So and I was like, you know, I would do that extremely rare thing because that's what my body does. It picks <laughs> up any extremely rare thing and it goes with it. So I, was, I literally had a doctor's appointment for kind of in three weeks' time and I was like, oh, my period's a day late and my cycle's always 28, 29 days. And I was like, oh, that's weird. I'll get it tomorrow. And then kind of three days passed and I <gasps> Oh, that's a bit weird. I think on day five, I said to my partner, I was like, I, just, I feel really off. Like, you know, that feeling right before you get a really bad cold or something and you're mm. like, oh, it's coming for me. I don't feel myself. I don't feel right. And I just thought, I don't feel very good. And I said to him, I was like, I just don't feel right. And he's like, yeah, you must be about to get sick. And I was like, yeah, it must be. I got to day seven, day eight. and I, But I was just like, well, I'm not pregnant. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I was just like. That was out of your mind. No, there's no way I'm pregnant. That's not, couldn't possibly mm. happen because I think our chance of conceiving naturally they said we're about five or six percent so they're pretty low and I thought you know two years of trying and having sex for four days at the right time everything right and doesn't work then it's not going to work now when you know we've got two kids we're yeah. clearly not doing it's that not a marathon a going super on. regular for mm. basis yeah um <laughs> so I was like no no and then I got to day 10 and I messaged one of my friends and I was like so my period is 10 days late She's like, babe, do you think maybe you could be pregnant? And I was like, no. She's like, I think you might be, so maybe you should do a pregnancy test. I was like, oh, do you think so? And I think I was really scarred from all those negative tests for two years. Mm. And I was just like, oh, I don't want to like, oh, I don't want to do this again. But I was like, oh, well, I need to do one because I was like, I'm seeing my doctor in a few weeks anyway and I should just clear this out if that's, you know, by some reason. But I'm not pregnant. I had this weird feeling that maybe I was. But my logic was like, well, you're not because you can't, you can't be. You probably That's also not. weren't going to let yourself believe it because of all no. that disappointment in the past. But it was too. like your instincts were there yeah. going, hey, I am pregnant <laughs> and your mind's going, no, bitch, you're not. <laughs> That's it. No way. So I did the test and it was positive straight away. And <gasps> and what happened? Yeah. What did you, how did you feel? I, were you in shock? I was in shock for about four months. <laughs> <laughs> and how old was your middle child? It was before he turned two. So I think I found out in, when did I find out? In September and he turned two in December. So he was nearly two. So I was just shocked, like more so than I have been any other time, obviously, because this is like something I've been told since I was 20. Like, oh, you'll never fall pregnant naturally, but that's okay. You'll have to do all these other things. And after having two IVF babies, you're just like, no, I am not that person but clearly I'm that person that these rare things happen to. But this time, <laughs> all of a sudden, it was a good thing. I was that annoying person where everyone tells you about, oh, I have this friend and they were doing IVF and then they just fell pregnant naturally and you're like, fuck off. Um, <laughs> what yeah, did your husband like, say when you were, when you told him? I didn't actually tell him. For, so he was working and working, working, and I wanted to wait till the kids were asleep and so we, like, did all that and we sat on the couch and we watched a show. I was really nervous to tell him because I was like, well, this is a shock to me. Imagine the shock he's going to have. And I sat there and I was like, oh, babe. He's like, what? I've got something to tell you. And he was like, what is it? Please come out with it now. And then I looked at him and I paused and he said, you're fucking pregnant, aren't you? And I was like, yes. 
And I was like, how did you know? And he goes, you looked at me with the weird smile face that you've only <laughs> ever looked at me with the two other times that you told me you were pregnant. And then he was just like, are you fucking kidding? And I was like, no, no, I am not. So good. And then, and then he was just like, go us. Yes. <laughs> oh, good on him. What a legend. <laughs> yeah. And we both just sat on the couch in shock for the whole night, I think. and The whole next four months. <laughs> no, li- literally the whole next few months we've been in shock. And how many months or weeks are you now? So I'm 21 weeks now. And you're due, can't do the uh, math? Mid to late June. Oh, that's a nice time to have a baby. It's not I too hot. So. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what you're having? Two summer, two summer babies, and so I'm excited to have a little winter baby, a girl. Oh, yay. And, yeah. you know, a lot of people say that the chances, and I know this one obviously is a natural conception, but they say that the IVF, the chances of having multiples are really, really high. Were you ever sort of wondering, oh, what if I have triplets or what if I have twins? No, because I think that's a bit of a myth because in Australia, so I think overseas they put multiple embryos in more regularly. Yeah, they do it more regularly overseas. In Australia it's not really a thing. So They have a higher risk of dividing. So you do have a slightly higher risk of twins, but it's not like, yeah, overseas where they have like eight at a time. It's because they've put for example, five embryos back in and then a few of them have split. So it's not actually like, oh, you're going to get one embryo put back in, but because you had IVF, you might end up with 16 kids. And they just don't do that here. No, they only ever put like two back in here if your chances of conceiving are really low and they might put, I think it's two max that they'll put back in. I think if you're over 40 and your chances are really slim and they know you've got three rounds of IVF and that's kind of it, then they're more likely then to put two in but yeah it's not really as much of a thing in Australia. Because we have chatted so in depth about that we might move on to talking I believe it was Augie's birth that was the one that was quite traumatic. Are you able to tell us a bit about this or briefly talk about Eva's birth first? Yeah sure so I had a really beautiful birth with with Eva my first and I was booked in at the birth center and I had her at 41 plus three which in my mind just was like forever you know from being overdue and now I look back and I'm like well when I was overdue the second time I was like what are you thinking bitch you had no one else to look after all you had to do was lay on the couch and watch shows for 10 days swollen little feet up yeah I know I was like oh (laughs) so impatient but how much you would love to have being patient again I know and have nothing to do and be so bored Mm. but yeah so I had her and it was beautiful I had a, a really long labor it was 22 hours but a really calm and really powerful birth and I, I I left that birth feeling like we are incredible like women are just the best I mean bless them but when you're going through and you're giving birth anyway you were like I am woman yeah hear me roar and I was roaring but <laughs> quite literally or yeah me too yeah. but so I had that beautiful birth experience and, I, and I, I I did a lot of prep like leading into that so I did a calm birth workshop and I did you know I did my meditation the amount of people that talk about calm birth including mm. Sophie's husband and everyone else we're gonna have to have anyway continue sorry yeah, yeah so I, I did that so I felt like I've done my research I've done my preparation and then going into the second time I just thought the same thing or I was like, I've got this down. I know what I'm doing. I've done this before. This is, this will be fine. And I got to 
42 weeks with him and I found a real difference in the system between my first birth and my second birth, both being IVF babies, that there seemed to be this real change in policy and procedure in that they were really, really worried about me being overdue the second time. And it was all around him being an IVF baby. And I was like, but what do you mean? No one was pressuring me this much to have an induction with my first and I was 41.3 and it was fine. And they were like, oh, it's a new policy, new procedures with IVF baby. We don't let them go overdue very long. And so I had to really even you know, where we live is quite a bit of an alternative suburb, I guess, and very green, And you know, being in a birth centre, they're all very, but even they were a bit like, no, we need to put this induction in. So I got to 41, 42 weeks. I'd been in, I'd been in pre-labor for a week and I was done. Like I'm quite a short person and my baby sit right at the front. I just carry huge all out the front and I'm so short and I was in so much pain. I was like, no, no, let's just get this induction done. And I felt like I wasn't too worried about the induction because I was just kind of like, I've got my tools, I've got my thing, I've done it before, it'll be fine. And I was already two centimetres dilated. So they were like, we think you probably might just need your waters broken and you're probably, that will probably be enough. Um, so I went in to have the induction and I got in and I found, again, I guess being in a really big hospital in the city that there's no communication to, between the departments. No one communicates to each other, it seems, at all. When you're going to be induced, you go into a different part of the hospital and you go upstairs, so you're not on the delivery ward, you're in like a holding area and different parts. A holding bay? Basically, yeah, <laughs> until you get into proper established labour. So I went in and she was like, oh, no, we, we'll need to put the gel in. And I was like, oh, no, that's what, not what my midwife said. She said, have the um, water's broken. She's like, no, no, the gel. I was like, okay, sure. So we did the gel and then I was like, okay, we'll get the gel in and I'll get going and then I can transfer back to the birth centre, which is what they told me. Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll see, we'll see. And I guess she was like, you know, go for a walk, keep being active. And we did all that and um, the day progressed. I, I think I laid down, I had a nap, I watched some Breaking Bad which was quite random. And I guess I think it was probably in the afternoon, maybe around two o'clock or so, that I started feeling like, oh, I think I think this is on. Like, I think we're on. I think we're, we're good to go, you know. And so the midwife would come in and this same pattern her happened over the course of about six hours where she would come in and assess me and say, no, you're not progressing. You're not dilated enough. Your cervix still is affixed and closed. You're not in labour. And I was like, oh, okay, keep bouncing. Could you being a bit bouncing. more positive though? Like, come yeah, on. Yeah, no, 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 apparently not. Just this is all the wrong things your body's doing, which is when you do calm birth too, like you learn about how it's all about Mental. positive association mm. and the words that you want used in your space. And so I kept bouncing, kept bouncing. And I got to like about four o'clock and I, I called her in because by this point I was in a lot of pain and I say pain because I I'd been told I wasn't in labor so I was like well I'm in pain like there's something wrong if I'm not in labor then what is all this pain and I was in tears I was crying at that point and I was in a really really tiny little room and I like suffer from anxiety as well and I'm quite claustrophobic so being in small spaces for me just heightens my anxiety. Yeah. So I called her in and I said, my husband and I both said, look, I've, I'm not doing very well. I feel like I'm on the verge of a pretty major panic attack. I need to get out of this space. There's something going on. I feel like I'm in, I'm in labour. I feel like this baby is coming. I, you know, my, my contractions by that point were about three minutes apart. Mm. When you hear all this, like when you, other people have heard this story who are midwives and they're like, ah, three minutes apart and it's a second baby. That baby's coming yeah. out. 
what the fuck? And and she would assess me and say the same thing. And I, I was asking basically to be transferred down to delivery ward. And I'm a real creature comfort. Like I like, you know, when the kids go to bed, I dim the lights and put a candle yeah, on. I'm that kind mood, of person. Yeah. And I think especially when you're trying to have a birth that's drug free, like you rely on a lot of other things to get you through it. So like I, you know, relied on dim lighting and music and essential mm-hmm. oils and mm-hmm. the bath and the shower. And I had none of that. It was literally me in this tiny, and my husband in this tiny room with all the bright light hospital rooms on and all the beeping going on and people walking back and forth. So the opposite of a calm birth. Exactly. And I said to her, I have to get out of this room. I have to get out. I'm about to have a panic attack. Please let me go down to the delivery ward. I don't care about going to birth center. I just need to be where I'm going to give birth. I cannot be in this space anymore. And she assessed me again and she said that the hospital policy is that you either have to be five centimetres dilated or your waters have broken. I was like, that doesn't make any sense. My waters broke with my daughter as I was pushing her out. I was like, I don't yeah. understand. What do you mean? Yeah. And so there was just this constant, I guess, me and my husband trying to fight for my rights to, yeah. to get the care that I should have received. So she said, go for a walk, go out of the room. You're about to have a panic attack, but I'll just leave you alone. So you go, <laughs> you go for a walk. And I got, and it was such a weird thing because I got downstairs and there's this fountain outside and I Did got down there. Did you walk down into the birth centre? <laughs> well, I got out and the fountain is out the front of the room where I had my daughter. And so it was this weird moment where I was standing, holding onto the fence, like trying to breathe through my contractions in front of this fountain. And I looked up and I saw like, oh, that is exactly where I had my daughter. And I was like, I just want to be in there. Like, mm. why can't I be in there? And she was like, go out to the main road and start walking up and down. <laughs> And I was like, I got to the fountain. I think she should have knocked off. Oh, she should have knocked off permanently. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't mean like that. I just mean from her career. Um, (laughs) But she. We're not doing death threats here. No, no, no. I'm not taking it that far. Please don't name (laughs) names. (laughs) No, I got to the fountain and I was holding on. I was like, I can't go any further. Like I was at that point where you can't talk. And you're breathing through your contractions and you're holding on and you're trying to zone in and you can't talk. Some people would call that active labour. They would call that active labour, funnily enough. And so my husband was like, right, we need to get you back in. He was like, I think the baby's going to come soon. We got back up, buzzed her. And once again, I begged and sobbed and said, I need to go to delivery. This baby is coming. I feel like the baby's coming out. And she was like, no, your baby's not coming. You're not dilated enough. I hate enough. this woman. And I said, well, what is like, what is going on? But the weirdest thing was that she wouldn't give me any support or any advice or comfort or guidance. She would just watch me have a contraction, watch me not be able to talk and breathe through it, go, good job, and then leave. So it was just in my head. I was like, okay, I'm not in labor, even though I feel like I am, but I'm not. Something is wrong with me. Something is wrong with this baby. And so I went into this full heightened state of distress, I guess, where I was like, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. My baby's not going to make it. I need to get out of this room, but I'm not allowed out of this room. And I was losing the the plot. We knew that the, the changeover was happening and we called her in one more time. And I said, again, I need to get out of here and said all these words that you learn when you're going through transition. I can't do it. I feel like there's Cut something this wrong. Baby out of me. I need an epidural. I said all those things to her. No, no, you're not in labor. You have to wait. To get <laughs> so the changeover happened and I absolutely lost it with my husband. And I was like, get someone in here. I can't do this anymore. 
And so we buzzed again. A new midwife came in and she assessed me. She was like, um, the gel is still inside you. You are eight centimetres dilated. We need to get you down to the delivery ward right now because you're going to give birth really I soon. I hope you reported that other – wait, we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> so – Jane started writing a letter. I'm really angry. That's a whole other story as well. Um, But yeah, so she was like, look, get your husband to start packing up your things. I'm just going to go tell them that you're coming and you're, I don't know, they must categorize you. I guess that you're like a person that needs, going to need attention immediately. There's baby coming. She's like, I'm just going to go tell them you're coming. I'll be back in one minute. And then I said to my husband, I was like, I need to go to the toilet. I don't feel good. I don't feel good. And and at that point I was, I was hysterical. Like I was sobbing. I was shaking and I was like, I don't feel good. I've got to go to the toilet. Went into the toilet and he obviously being my second labor and birth recognized the sounds of me Mm -hmm. pushing those cow noises. And he was like, ah, open the door. And he's like, are you pushing? And I was like, yeah, I'm pushing. And so he rang the emergency Mm. buzzer, which meant, everyone like everyone floods in Mm. so I just thought like oh I'm gonna have the baby here I guess but then they were like no no you can't have the baby up here we don't have babies up here oh funny being a hospital and and it's where I've been the whole day okay we've got to get you downstairs you need to stop pushing and I was like I'm not voluntary it's my body (laughs) doing it like I'm not I'm not choosing to make farmyard noises here no and I had overalls on as well. Um, Wait, you were still fully dressed? Yeah, because, oh, like, the, you know, I wasn't in labour. Because fucking so Felicia was, told her that she wasn't in labour and she's pretty much having a snack on the couch. I know. I was in my overalls. And so they're like, get into the wheelchair. We've got to run you down. Stop pushing. Oh, my you God, this is making my ass hurt just hearing I'm just, this. I'm actually furious, but keep you going. You know when I you go through, know. like, weird traumatic things and your yes. brain automatically forgets a lot of things? Yes, it blacks but out. But you remember really weird things as well. So I remember being in the lift and going downstairs and there was another couple in the lift and I was screaming by that point. And they were like, stop pushing, stop pushing. And I was like, oh. <laughs> And so we got funny. down into funny. the room and they basically were like, get your clothes off because your baby's coming. So I pulled my clothes off and I've, again, kind of lost it at that point and said, I, I can't do this. I, ne- I need an epidural because I hadn't, like my brain hadn't had time, I guess, to catch up with no, what my body yeah. was doing. And because I'd been told over and over again You're for not six in hours, I was like, well, I'm not in labour. I was still in this zone of like I'm dying, my baby's, like something really bad's no. happening in my head. That's where I thought I was. Is that because she kept on saying, I mean, if she had have said through that whole transition, yeah, absolutely, you're doing really well, you're getting really, really close, then your mentality with well, this would be like, okay, this is happening. And because she was saying no, then you are thinking if this is pain, I'm dying. Totally. I mean, yeah. well, you think about how intense and crazy at times labour can be when you know you're in labour. Imagine being in labour and being told you're not in labour. Wow. Like, Yeah, oh and God. I think I'm so lucky in the, the one great thing that came out of that whole thing is I got given the head midwife there because I hadn't been assigned a midwife at all. So in those emergency situations, they just give whoever is the head person, I guess, because they're not assigned to anyone. Mm. So I got given her and she was amazing and I remember saying to her, like I can't do this like I actually can't do it and she like grabs me and and held me and was like you can do it you are doing it you're doing an amazing job like let's do this let's have your baby now 
And I guess that was kind of what I needed at that time to be able to keep going because it was the first time I'd had a medical professional tell me like, no, no, you're doing a great job. Like you can do it. Let's do it. And she said to me, you've got to get on the floor now. Your baby's coming out. We need to get him out. You need to get on the floor and push. So I pulled all my overalls off, pulled my underpants off. (laughs) We're still on as well. And um, I started pushing and I, I guess I just went to another world, I think. And I think there is that kind of you know limbo land when you're having a baby and you're kind of not on this world anyway but I wasn't in myself if that makes sense so I was really somewhere else and I was kind of watching myself go through the motions if that makes sense and he went into distress as I was pushing and they they couldn't find his heartbeat which was the next kind of big thing and they said she was like you know we need to get him out right now you've got kind of three pushes to go he needs to come out he's not happy in there so I'm gonna pull and you push and you've got three pushes and I need you to keep pushing in between your contractions as well just keep pushing the whole time and I think also think I was so lucky in that situation that it was my second birth. So I knew more what to do so mm. with the pushing. I think your body just knows. So I pushed him out and he came out and he, I think he took a few, you know, 30 seconds or so to cry and he cried and they put him on my chest. And uh, I think the thing for me is that I don't remember any of this. So I have no memory of his birth. I wasn't there. Do you know what I mean? I think that's the thing from that experience that left me the most fucking angry was that I was robbed. I felt unsafe that whole birth, but I was also robbed of that experience of remembering it and experiencing my baby's birth because I just wasn't, I was not there. And we had a birth photographer, but she didn't make it, obviously, because I wasn't in labour. I didn't tell her to come. Oh, my God. Um, so she got there, I think, about 15 minutes after he was born. There's all these photos of me, and I'm literally just, like, holding a baby, but I'm not there. And you can, yeah, you can yeah. see in my face that I'm I'm not there. So I had him, and, they were, you know, said, let's get your placenta out as you do. And I wanted to have, I just wanted to do it naturally, which I did with my daughter. I didn't want the injection. They were like, okay, yep, let's do that. So I did that, and then I started having quite a lot of blood loss and they were kind of like oh we need to get you up into the bed now because you're bleeding quite a lot and by that point I was kind of shaking because I think the adrenaline yeah. and I was just trembling so like let's give the baby to to your husband he can hold him and let's get you up into the bed and so I got up to the bed I'd lost quite a lot of blood by that point so then I was kind of fainting they got me up and then they they always said, oh, we're really sorry. I know that you didn't want the injection. We're going to have to give it to you anyway, even though you pushed your placenta out, but we think there's some still in there. And they had to do that horrendous thing where they pump your stomach, where they mm. like, oh. I think that was worse than the burning ring of fire, to be honest. It is, that because pumping. after you think you've just pushed a baby out, when they come and push their hands really hard on your stomach to squeeze out the remains, it's like the end of the sauce bottle. Like you're just really yeah. squeezing that last bit out you're like oh my goodness please get off me the whole thing was just horrendous like just between not being there but then being there for these horrible moments that really were just horrific you know and they were like we think you may have a third degree tear I think it's second but she she was like this is beyond me um so she's like I'm gonna have to call the doctor in and if the doctor can't do it then we'll need to take you to surgery so luckily the doctor was on she was like no no I can come in and do it because I think once it gets past two the midwife doesn't do it I think like the doctor does it um and so the doctor came in did it which that was really good but I was just really unwell after it and they kept trying to get me up and my blood pressure went really low and I kept fainting 
And then I kind of had that for two days afterwards. And my baby, he also had a really high temperature, which I found out afterwards is common with babies who have shock. And so they they had to do two hourly observations on him and on me. And so just that whole, I felt really robbed of the birth itself and the experience, but also those first two days of just bonding with your new baby, because all it was the whole two days was just being monitored constantly and interrupted. And he um, had fluid in his lungs. So he was vomiting and like gagging all the time. So there was that, which was quite scary in itself because I had that fear the whole birth that something was wrong and something was kind of happened to him. Then I had to listen for the first two days of him mm. you know, not being able to breathe properly and I had to come in and keep doing the little suctiony thing to help get it out. And it was just, yeah, it was just not what it should have been. This makes me feel like it's bringing up memories of my last birth with Yumi because a similar thing happened to me, whereas I thought I gave birth and they were like, oh, that's the largest placenta we've ever seen. And I was like, ha, ha, ha. And then I went into the bed and thought like with the other two births, everything's fine. And then I just kept fainting and fainting mm. and fainting. And then I couldn't even put my head up off the pillow. And then I started feeling like a failure of a mother because I had to hand my child to the nurses, which I've never done before with the other other two children so that affected me mentally and then because I wasn't feeling well enough and my body was obviously struggling my milk wasn't coming in and then I needed a blood transfusion and I still like just talking about it now it was such a traumatic experience and it led to postnatal depression or it was a part of that whole package that yeah it's it's sad for me that that was my last experience of childbirth because it really did frighten the absolute hell out of me yeah and it shouldn't be and there's I think there's some really big flaws in our systems in Australia in how women are are treated and not from every single medical professional, but from some, you know, that you're seen as like, you don't know what you're talking about, you know? And I, and that's what I kept saying to that midwife when I was in labor, I was like, I've had a baby before I've had, I've got endometriosis. Like I know what pain is like, this is labor. Like I, I know what I'm doing. I'm not an idiot. And just to not be heard and seen and believed. And, you know, they were three really big things that I took from that experience that I then really dominated my postpartum experience as well, just not being heard or seen or believed. Yeah. When did you know postpartum that you weren't like mentally okay with what had happened? I think it got to about four months postpartum and I was having all those kind of symptoms, which I later found out was PTSD of, you know, like panic attacks and feelings of anxiety and, and thinking all the time something's going to happen to my baby. And the big thing that um, made me seek help was the nightmares I was having. So I was having really horrific nightmares where I would relive the birth and but he wouldn't make it. And so I was getting up probably three or four times a night and he wasn't like my first, he was quite a good sleeper. Yeah. So he would sleep. And so I would be waking him up three or four times a night to check that he was breathing. Yeah. And it got to that, that I just was like, I, I don't think I'm okay. And my husband and was like, yeah, I don't, I don't think you're okay either. So let's, what can we do about this? And what kind of, like, who, who did you see about that? So I went to my GP and I guess because I've had battles with depression, anxiety since I was about 13. So I'm quite familiar with what to do, I mm. guess. But I think that's a big issue with women who may be experiencing that for the first time is that they don't know, well, what do I do? So I, I went. begin, yeah. Yeah. And it's so hard. And so I went and saw my GP and said, look, I don't think I'm doing very well. I'm having all these things happen. And she said, I I think you've got PTSD. 
So let's get you in to see um, a psychologist so you can start working with them. So she recommended someone who specifically specialised in PTSD and I started seeing her uh, twice a week to start with. So it was pretty intense because I was so crippled by my symptoms. Like it was really impacting my life and my relationships with my daughter and my son and my husband. And I was like, yeah, I need to get this shit sorted. How do they know what's post-traumatic stress disorder and what's postnatal depression? Like how do they work out the difference and what is the difference? I think from the differences I've experienced is depression's more of like a lulled state of existence, if that makes sense, where you find it hard to see hope and joy out of things. And, and PTSD is more little like random things set you off. Like you've got all these weird triggers of things that take you back to that place and you relive the moments of trauma over and over again. Mm. So I think it's kind of a bit more mixed in with anxiety maybe as well as really having these really strange triggers that take you back to that trauma and make you see it and feel it again. And have those feelings subsided? And if they have, how long did that take? So they have. So I did EDMR therapy, which is really weird and wacky. I always say it wrong. It's I desensitization movement reprocessing EM, EMDR. I just, yeah, it's a long word. Anyway, basically what they do is you have to go in and relive the experience. It's horrible and it's really hard. It's the hardest type of therapy I've done. I've done CBT before, but this was just fucked. Like there's no other word to describe it, but it helps. So you relive the trauma, you talk through it like it's happening to you and they have a little laser wow. that they show in front of you. It's hard to explain it verbally um and they move it back and forth like a pendulum yeah Mm -hmm. like a pendulum and you follow it with your eyes and basically what it is 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 using your eyes to change your brain wow and how your brain feels about those memories it's about reprocessing them to have a different reaction within your body so it's kind of wacky does it Um, work Yeah, it totally works. So you have to basically go through the trauma over and over again. And then each time you go through, you do this over the course of a long time and you go through and you rate how you feel about that trauma each time afterwards. And each time afterwards. It's very frightening to know that you have to relive that every time you walk it, like when you have to do that over and over again. Yeah. And the first, I think the first three sessions I did afterwards, I was a mess for a few days afterwards and just tired and drained. And I think it wasn't until I got to kind of like five or six sessions that I was like and it wasn't like oh I'm fixed it was more of a oh I haven't had a nightmare for two weeks Mm, no it was more like like oh when I now I think about it I haven't felt like that for two weeks and I think it was more that the side effects and the symptoms of PTSD started decreasing that was the change and I remember on Instagram once I said like I think I was doing a QA and a thing and someone said do you have any advice for pregnant women and something to do with birth and I said oh I found it really helpful to you know listen or associate myself with you know really positive births and the kind of births that I want And I remember you said to me, oh, like, I understand what you're saying, but part of me wishes I knew about, you know, not negative births, but traumatic births so that then when I was in it, I could have done some things differently. Yeah, because I was In no way to victim blame. Like, I'm not saying that you should have had to do anything differently. Like, you should have just been listened to. But for people who are, you know, giving birth soon, like, is there something that you wish you did differently at the time? 
Yeah, see, I was that person too at the first time I was pregnant and I was all like, I'm doing calm birth. I don't want to hear about any negativity, like get out of my space. Don't say the word pain in front of me. Yeah, like pain's (laughs) not a word I hear. You know, that was me as well. And I guess one of the things I always remember when I had a debrief with the hospital was that they said, oh, did you not see the poster on the wall? And I was like, what poster? And they're like, there's posters in each cubicle that say, if you feel like you're not getting the care you receive, you can call this number. Yeah, and I was like, those. no, I was fighting for my life. Yeah. So didn't you didn't have the time because you wall. were in labor. Oh, like, honestly, like, again, putting it back on me that it was my fault and my responsibility to take charge of my own care. Like, get fucked. What happened to Felicia? She went under, had some monitoring done and assessment and basically had a review. I think probably those words, maybe she was put in like a performance management sort of situation. But, but yeah, I guess my advice would be to, Don't take it's hard because an I, get, I get it as well. Like I get not wanting to hear negative stories and it's hard to hear. But I think those podcasts like Australian Birth Stories are so great to listen to to take away what you want from it, to take Mm. away that, okay, these things can happen and sometimes the system can really fail women. And so what can I do if I am ever in that position? What are my rights and what can I do to change the situation? And that's why I share a lot of it too is I want other women to know that if you are in labour and you're in a hospital and you are not happy with the care that you're receiving, you have options. You ask to speak to someone else. You demand to speak to someone else. You demand to have a different midwife. I guess we just didn't know that. And I think that because I'd had such a beautiful first birth, I had so much trust in midwives. Mm-hmm. And I think that really failed me that second time because I didn't, I just thought, oh, I have all this trust in midwives. I had this great experience. I just thought, oh, well, you know what you're talking about. So I think, yeah, I think it's good to hear those other stories so that for some reason, if you are ever in that position, you know that you have your rights and these mm. are what they are. And, do and everyone mentally prepares for birth in many different ways. Some people don't at all because they just, you know, go with it. But I found that Australian birth stories or one born every minute, I I just mm. felt like I needed to know every scenario possible. So I was aware that, you know, like I think I watched one birth that she basically sneezed and gave birth and I yeah, was yeah. like, what? Could I do that? I, know. I definitely didn't. But it's interesting and it's nice to know your stories and my stories and, you know, Sophie's story, everyone's story because, yeah, every birth is different. Um, how are you feeling now about giving birth for the third time after such a traumatic experience? Yeah, it's funny. The first thing I did when I found out I was pregnant was, okay, well, what am I doing with my care? And I went into this like overdrive of researching what I wanted and all the options. And that's what I mean. I think in Australia, we're really lacking on what our options are here. And I think that there are the options, but they're harder to know about. You know what I mean? Like they're harder to find out what they are. So I went into this research and I have a friend who's actually a postpartum doula. So she's quite involved in that side of things. And so I met up with her and I was like, oh, by the way, I'm pregnant. Great. Oh, Oh, really? Okay. So what do I do? And so I I went to my doctor basically with a plan of what I wanted. And I have a different GP now and he's, he's amazing. So I went to this appointment where I was supposed to get the referral to see my specialist have surgery again and said, don't need the referral because I'm pregnant. (laughs) And he was like, what? And I said, you know, this happened. He knew about what had happened. And he was like, okay, I just want to say whatever happens, you are not going back to that hospital. I want you to know that you are not going back to that hospital. And I will take charge of finding you a model of care where you feel safe and you feel supported. And that is my goal. And we're going to get there. And I don't want you to worry about it. And those sort of GPs are just incredible. He's always booked out. It's 
so annoying. Yeah, you so gotta I, not tell I your had... friends about those ones. No. I try and keep mine hidden now because I used to say how in love with them I am, and now I'm like, oh, no, 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 they're not that good. Don't, nah. Don't so he, I, I guess, because I had a plan and I'd done the research, and I was like, okay, I think I want to go to this hospital. It's out of my area, though, even though it's actually technically closer to me than the other hospital. He was like, have you thought about a home birth? And I was like, yeah, I have. I don't, I just don't think it's for me. And he was like, okay, great. I'll get you into this hospital. And if I can't get you into that hospital, I'll get into this other hospital. And that's great though, because I think a lot of people, you know, some people really want a home birth and then some people go, oh, it's either this hospital experience that I didn't like or a home birth. And they're like a long way apart in terms of, you know, a a woman's wishes. So Mm. I I think sometimes people do have a bad hospital experience and think, oh, well, in order to avoid that, the only other option is to have a home birth. Yeah. And it's not. When I've talked about on my platform that I'm I'm going to a different hospital that I chose. People are like, oh, you must be private then. I'm like, no, no, through the public system. So I got he got me into got me approval basically, which is often what you need if you're not in that catchment through public. Mm. So you need approval. You need a doctor to either write or call or work out, get your approval into that program. So I'm in a model of care there where I have two midwives. They are my midwives. They do all my appointments at home. So it's amazing for pre and post. And then one of those midwives I'll have for the birth as well. And I also have a doula as well. So I feel like I feel really good going into this birth. And I feel like that might change, obviously, as I ride the wave of pregnancy hormones and getting closer to that time and all of those things. I feel like I'll go through moments where I probably will need to check in with my psychologist again and see how I'm going. But I feel like I've created a a bubble of my people and those people are going to be around me when I birth this baby and I feel good about it. And that's how I feel at the moment. So so you should. The thing that sucks looking back on your birth is obviously the fact that you bled afterwards wasn't great and, you know, you did have a tear like – I'm sure that's not what you were hoping for, but it sounds like the actual labour itself could have been great. Yes, and that's Because your thing. body was doing what it needed to do and it yeah. was relatively fast and I just feel like if you were believed, you would have mm. been able to handle it. it. And that's what it all comes down to and this is what I talked about a lot in my sessions with my psychologist was I, I, I just keep playing over my head like what if I just got a different midwife, you know, mm. because it wasn't for me, it wasn't the induction process and that's one of the things my doctor said to me how are you going to feel if you need to be induced again because you've had two babies that have come quite overdue it's quite common that you'll you know it's likely Mm. and I said look for me it wasn't the induction process that was screwed for me it was my care it was the person Mm. it was that one single person like if I'd gone in there and then be like oh you're in labor great let's transfer you down to your space Mm. had the baby in three hours dream birth like you know what I mean like it wasn't 22 hour marathon like my daughter but yeah so I just I just feel like even in the public system like you you don't have to pay to get the care that you should receive. It's just you have to go about it a different way and that way might not be offered up to you on a plate, you know? Well, Leah, I can't thank you and we can't thank you enough for coming on today and sharing your story with all our listeners and we can't wait to see and meet your, well, not physically, but your new bundle of joy and we wish you all the best for your birth and can't wait to hear how it went. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming having me on. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Bump. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and give us a review. If you didn't, good on you. You can also follow us on Instagram at beyondthebump.podcast to stay up to date on behind the scenes and future episodes. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.